Welcome to the Unfair Podcast. Hello and welcome. I'm Berhan Kabai, Head of Content at Onfif's Sovereign Debt Institute. Uh, and on this podcast, I'm delighted to be joined by Gregory Smith, Emerging Markets Fund Manager at MNG Investments, for a discussion today on debt distress and refinancing risks of African sovereigns in the international bond market. Gregory, firstly, thank you very much for joining us. Perhaps you could start by painting a picture of um, how high the refinancing risk in Africa are and where the risks are most concentrated. Certainly. Well, thanks for having me on. So I think the key thing with any comments on Africa is that we're pointing to a very diverse continent of 54 countries. So, you you know, you've got a challenge making statements. And in, in the book I published last year, one of the things I tried to do was sort of create a typology where we looked at some of the large sort of emerging markets in Africa, which we've got quite developed and sophisticated financial markets. And here I'm thinking about Morocco, I'm thinking about South Africa or Mauritius. And then we've got a number of countries who have come into international capital markets over the last 15 years and might have one, two or many bonds um, listed on foreign stock exchanges and trading in global markets. And here we're talking about countries like Kenya, Senegal, Ivory Coast or Angola, for example. And then we've got 32 African countries with very, very little commercial borrowing and, ve- and without bonds trading in global markets. And here I'm thinking about Malawi, Togo, Burkina Faso, for example, countries that are rather more aid dependent and quite small. So when people talk about rising debt and debt problems, they impact these sets of countries in different ways. So at the, as I said, the, the, the poorer countries that are aid dependent, they don't have big refinancing risk, they don't have bonds maturing. So their biggest challenge is repaying the official sector loans, which are typically concessional to the likes of the African Development Bank, World Bank, and and some to larger bilateral lenders like China. But I think the most interesting bucket of countries is that the frontier countries that have got these, they come into the markets over the last 15 years, and suddenly 10 years on, a lot of these bonds are maturing. And that's where the pressure is. And we have very, very difficult markets at the moment. You know, there's been all sorts of problems. And while emerging markets aren't in the eye of the storm um, with fears of a US recession, they they certainly get hit by the turbulence. And not many African countries with a single B rating or lower are going to have easy access to capital markets. Um, Countries like South Africa, Morocco do. For example, Morocco was able to come to market about two weeks ago at quite affordable prices. But when you're Kenya, when you're Angola, when you're um, Ivory Coast, the cost of borrowing is very, very high. So with these difficult markets in in mind, what we need to do is look at who's got bonds maturing over the next couple of years and focus on them. And then that's where we find where the real risk is. Yeah, that, that's quite interesting. Obviously, yeah, markets are a lot tougher now, 10 years on, as you said, uh, after they sort of made their way into the capital markets. Obviously, the, the markets are tougher, the higher borrowing costs, and some, some countries have defaulted, um, Zambia being one, which we'll, we'll discuss later. So for the single Bs, um, sovereigns um, not having an easy access, will investors naturally demand a higher premium as, as well, being a low credit? Um, absolutely. So we've, we've seen that this year. So we haven't seen many countries try, but Turkey has come to market and paid over 10%. Um, Mongolia came, which is another single B country, which um, basically came with a very interesting narrative where they said, we're not taking any on any new debt. Any dollar we borrow today is, is 100% for refinancing. And that helped them into markets at a slightly cheaper rate. 
and then for in Africa we've only seen Egypt and they decided to come with a Sukuk hoping for a golf bid and they came with just a three-year product but it was still a massive 11% coupon so a real struggle for Egypt to raise the financing it needs so Egypt's got bonds maturing this year next year the year after and and from then on so it does need market access it, and what it's trying to do is reassure its creditors, which is a mix between the multilaterals, it's a very large debtor to the IMF, to bilaterals, mostly from the Gulf, Q, um, Qatar, UAE and Saudi, and then it's borrowed quite heavily from Eurobond markets. Although the bulk of Egypt's borrowing is still domestic and in Egyptian pounds. So Egypt's a country that's paid up already once this year for an expensive Sukuk and will need um, to come back to the the markets for something like 3 billion in 2024 and something like 3 billion again in 2025. And the big question is, you know, we're going through this market turbulence, but will market will the market storm ease sufficiently to, to allow them to borrow at more affordable rates over the next couple of years? And that's that's the tricky proposition. And my view on that is, you know, interest rates, you know, the US 10-year is dancing up and down from three and a half over four and back down again at the moment. And who knows where exactly it will settle for the next couple of years. But when we went through a lot of this debut issuance and, and very high borrowing from these countries, US 10-year averaged about 2.4%. And my, my best guess is that we don't go back to those low levels. And we, we end up with a slightly higher cost of borrowing, but hopefully not as ruthlessly expensive as it is now. Is Egypt the biggest risk because of how much it needs to refinance next year and obviously its dependence on um, the, the different sort of parties in, across GCC and multilateral lenders as well? Um, e Egypt's need, borrowing needs are, are very large and, and it's borrowed way more than any other African country on the Eurobond market, but that's because it's also a very large economy. You know, it's, it's a very large population. It's a very large economy, so it borrows more. So when we put things in percent of GDP terms, it doesn't stand out so much, but, but it is billions of dollars. So I think when we look at 2023, not many bonds are maturing. And in my view, they could be, you know, they're very small scraps or they, they, they can be dealt with where we we've we've been talking about this wall of african eurobond maturities coming in 2024 we see quite a big step up from 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 this year and when we look at the, the countries in trouble i've mentioned egypt because it has these bonds but the other two country three countries are kenya tunisia and e ethiopia and i think tunisia and ethiopia are challenged because their credit ratings are down in the seas they've got extremely low credit ratings and when we look at market pricing of their bonds, they're another step worse. So the, the, it, it's going to be really tough for Tunisia and Ethiopia to meet their maturities in 2024 unless they can deliver a set, uh, a set of reforms and, and secure IMF programs, perhaps. And then the other country is Kenya. And Kenya's in fairly good shape macroeconomically, and it's making um, the right steps on the fiscal front. But Kenya made a mistake in 2014 when it came to the market for the first time and it got quite greedy and it took a two billion dollar loan, which is not a lot for the markets, but it's a lot to refinance for Kenya and a lot to refinance in these tough markets. So they managed to pay back one of the five year tranches a few years ago, but they're stuck with this two billion dollars maturing one day in June 2024. So despite their credit rating being OK, 
in these tough markets, they're sort of running out of weeks to be able to refinance and, and reduce this risk. So Kenya is also in the spotlight, given the size of its maturity relative to its economy. Okay, that, that's interesting with, with, with Kenya. And um, just talk, mentioning Ethiopia and Tunisia, um, would, do you think they have no market access at all at the moment? Um, yeah, that would be my best guess based on what I see in the um, in market pricing. Just the yields seem seem too high right at, you know, talking at the moment in, in mid-March 2023. I think in, in way better markets, it could improve. But I think something, you know, they need to come halfway towards the markets as well and for Ethiopia it looks like they're they've come to the end of their their civil war which has been devastating for the country they and they've got a large one billion dollar loan coming in um, December 2024 so there's still a little bit of time before then but it you know the it's, it's a difficult one for them and even with an IMF program they might be asked among the parameters to reprofile that bond and, but they've remained current, they're paying the coupon. So they could have a conversation with um, potentially with creditors to postpone and extend the, the bonds for a few more years, perhaps, until they can get the benefits of the electricity exports from the new dam they built with the Eurobond proceeds. And then, and then Tunisia, it's just for the market, I think it's just really about securing an IMF program. And that's something they're, they're struggling with, quite turbulent politics and, and difficult reforms. Yeah, and I guess the question really that pops up is debt sustainability. I mean, how how even with Egypt, the eleven percent yield, and um, with the rising costs of borrowing of these sovereigns, I mean, how sustainable it is to keep paying these these amounts if they do access the markets. Yeah, I think I think once yields get close to ten percent, in it's the chance of payback drop massively. And in my analysis of of sovereign bonds with very large coupons it's it's it becomes almost a coin toss it's it's about 50 50 whether investors get repaid on those so sometimes it's just a short term give me a bit of breathing space and we'll we'll get ourselves into a better place but if you if you borrow like that for a sustained period it, it doesn't end well and so it's really if Egypt managed to manages to deliver on the, the reforms it's promised keep the IMF program going um, and managed to raise the money it suggested it can through international investment into its state-owned enterprises, then Egypt is potentially solvent and liquid again and can get through this, this debt stress. But if they don't deliver on those reforms, you can't keep printing at over 10% because, yeah, the, the interest bill becomes too large and already interest payments on Egypt's debt are half of their revenues. Yeah, and... Just on that, I mean, how much, how high are default risks from African sovereigns? What, what are your thoughts on that? Um, you know, we we've over we've seen we've tragically seen uh, Zambia default in 2020 during the pandemic, but based on debt pressures they had building up for many years before that, we we had Ghana default. Um, well, it said it wouldn't pay creditors um, at the end of last year, and now they've they've. They've defaulted on one of their bonds and with the, the restructuring conversations are in, in, you know, talks are going on. So so we've had sort of two, two substantial defaults on euro bonds. And before that, we'd it'd been very small, actually. You know, we'd, we'd seen um, a, a small slip by um, the Seychelles. Uh, some coupons weren't paid by every coast back in their civil war during 2010 and then Mozambique. But we hadn't had a stack or number of bonds 
um, default until Zambia. And then, you know, there's also been a debt slip by Chad, um, although they joined the common framework on that. And during Ethiopia civil war, they also signed up for the G20 common framework, which is essentially a table that tries to get traditional creditors together with um, newer creditors like that have scaled up their lending, such as China, um, and get them around the G20 table. So we, we've had a, num a, a few defaults and then and then it gets sort of more tricky. You go back to that typology I introduced at the start where for the 32 African countries that don't have commercial debt, a default tends to be like a late payment to the World Bank, a late payment to China. And these tend to get called arrears rather than a default. So they don't tend to cause alarm to credit ratings. And the media doesn't even pick them up sometimes. So they're, they're quite a different situation to when we're all staring at a Bloomberg screen and we quite clearly see the Ghana payment is late. So you kind of have a problem with debt arrears potentially. But, but we're still talking about a few countries at the moment although the increasing debt risks, and if they're not dealt with, could lead to a more systemic crisis in the next few years. Yeah, we could see more examples, but as you said, um, Zambia and Ghana, perhaps the two biggest examples, Zambia being the first uh, African sovereign to sort of um, to default uh, uh, during COVID, it's sort of been stuck in a restructuring sort of battle. And what do you make of the restructuring talks? I mean, is that a warning sign to other African nations if they do fall, fall under this? I mean, I suppose Ghana, you know, looks like that's being dealt with a lot sooner. But I suppose the Zambia situation is is, is a bit worrying, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. You know, this has taken uh, too many months, you know, so there were there, there's every restructuring situation is difficult. And Zambia's the, you know, the IMF are, are, are crucial for debt workouts in, in the current architecture. And so the IMF waited for the elections which came in 2021. And then once the new government was in place, the IMF then began its conversations and the program was secured. Now, the big one of the big challenges is um, China is evolving as a creditor. It scaled up its lending massively between 2010 and 2016. Um, and it did that through a number of initiatives, including Belt and Road, and a number of African countries were beneficiaries. And a key thing about China lending is it's mostly for infrastructure. It was very concentrated. A few African countries got the lion's share of that lending. It wasn't equally split by any means. Country, you know, such as Angola, Zambia, Ethiopia, Kenya and Cameroon were some of the largest borrowers. So it's extremely concentrated. And then China's evolving as a creditor. It's sort of it's learning it, it as it goes, if you like. And it's got problems about its lending in Sri Lanka, in Pakistan. It had to reschedule loans in Ecuador in 2020 as well. So all of these things are fairly new. And the scale of that lending means we've got a bigger scale of debt problems. So China is at the table, at the G20 table on Zambia. But, but often we have geopolitics taking center stage we have you know arguments in the media between the united states and china and i think these sorts of things slow down the debt negotiations so we're sort of waiting on sri lanka we're waiting on zambia to see how a debt default pans out with a large stake from china a large stake from the multilaterals and a large stake from the bond markets we haven't really had that before on the other side, we've got um, Ghana, where they've borrowed very little from, from China. So 
Ghana is um, they've done a domestic debt swap and they're beginning talks on an external restructuring. And there is actually potential for Ghana to move faster because it doesn't have to go through that those difficult conversations with all its bilateral creditors. But yeah, it's a really interesting space. And the tragedy of this, you know, while Zambia is waiting to get this debt reduction, the economy's not growing as fast as it should, and they're not getting the the net financing they need to move things forward and deliver on their development objectives. Yeah, it's, it's a very um, interesting situation and, and um, uh, there must be some really, um, um, difficult conversations there with, with, with Zambia. Um, what do you make of the, the call for multilateral, multilateral lenders to be included in the restructuring talks? I think that's been one of the talking points in the last few weeks. We're sort of mid-March as we're recording this, but what, what do you yep. make of that? Um, my own personal view, and I worked for the World Bank for a very long time, so I could be quite biased, is that um, I think what the multilaterals do the you know in in the situation in this in Zambia situation it would be African Development Bank World Bank IMF they provide concessional net financing in difficult situations so we're all members you know the United Kingdom's a member the United States is a member Zambia's a member China's a member so we want these institutions to deliver and I think there's a lot of things they can do to improve I think there's a lot of things they can do to lend quicker and in larger volumes and particularly around a, a climate agenda. So it's not, but we want that lending to flow to Zambia. Zambia is a country that most of its electricity is generated by hydro. It exports copper, which is massive for the net zero transition. And we want Zambia growing and producing again. And I think that's the role of the multilaterals. So I, that's why I think they are, should be treated as senior creditors. And I think China's right to be concerned, like, hang on, why am I the first? to take a hit on my debt um, and not you, but really China's a member of the World Bank as well. And I think there is a problem about China getting, you know, as a, a leading role at those institutions, I'll say, get, that matches the clout of its economy. And that needs to be resolved too. But I don't, I think in these situations, it's better that the, the multilaterals remain whole and quickly start lending new money to the country at concessional rates. And then just lastly, a point, I think one of the reasons China feels like that is the G20s decided under this common framework to do official first and then commercial. And that means China's really the first one who's been asked to where and it feels why am I own, the only one? Why am I going first? But had they done the sequencing slightly different, had we got going with the commercial restructuring alongside the bilateral, maybe they wouldn't have felt that way. And, you know, markets or pricing these bonds way down from par in the the 40s so that's the market saying we're you know we're, we're likely to take a haircut as well so i think sequencing of the g20 com framework could be much better yeah i, th I think it's fair to say china holds the key um as you said they've drastically evolved and um they drastically sort of increased their involvement in african sovereign debt over the years and now um, it does seem that they hold the keys to some of these restructuring talks in emerging markets and in africa too yeah, and at times they've been very generous. They were very generous to Angola during the pandemic through the DSSI. They, you know, Sri Lanka, uh, sorry, and the Angolan debt was extremely high, as was Pakistan. So China's been very generous. It's relieved a lot of small interest um, free loans. So it, it has a history of, you know, it doesn't often provide haircuts, but it will certainly extend maturity. So, but I think they just need to, to learn to do this at, 
in a sort of more collaborative way with with other creditors. And I think that if debt relief discussions are well coordinated, then I think they can happen slightly faster rather than on a case by case basis. But but certainly they're they they're not to be ignored in those contexts. But as I said, China's lending's been extremely concentrated in Africa. So there are lots of countries that have borrowed very little from China. And if they did restructure, it wouldn't be they wouldn't have the same hurdle to overcome. Yeah. Um, and I just wanted to ask you about some of the proposed sort of sort of novel sort of solutions of restructuring debt. For example, debt for nature swaps, which is being used uh, and being talked about a lot more recently. Um, I think this, this has been proposed to Zambia as well by the um, WWF and um, has been talked about with Sri Lanka, for example. And obviously we saw the Belize transaction a few years ago. What are your thoughts about that? Obviously, debt for nature swaps where, you know, where, where, where sovereigns are forgiven debt in exchange for investments in, in environmental uh, conservation. Yeah, I, th- I think these are these are a fascinating step. They've been around for a long time, but they've re- recently come back into the limelight at, at a slightly larger scale than before. Belize, Barbados. There are conversations about Zambia. There are conversations about Gabon. And I think whatever we can do to secure our biodiversity, to improve the climate, improve the oceans, is wonderful. And if we can combine that in a in a some form of debt debt workout then that's fantastic. And I think what that does is it helps encourage someone to come in with something to enhance the quality of the credit and reduce the borrowing cost. And that was the US government's um, insurance on the Belize blue transaction. And I think that's a real positive. It brought in that sort of market access parachute for Belize. And because they were delivering what they said they deliver on these um, ocean objectives, it was they were able to get that support. I think on the other side of the fees have they've been really expensive for the sovereign. I think the fees could come down a lot, but I think yeah they they've got a an important role to play. But I think that you know the tricky part with all of these things they involve some form of carrot they for credit sweetener and someone has to ultimately pay for that. And and you know and and so you've got to find who will come in with um, the guarantee to make that transi- transaction work. Great, thanks very much, Gregory, for joining me. It's really interesting to hear your views. My pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to the OMFIF podcast.